Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... I think whenever there's a financial crisis or markets look a bit you know, wobbly, that it should be sort of stopped. I think uh, short selling leads to panic when markets are in a poor state. I think it, and it can actually do damage to the real economy. Co-founder of Investors Mutual Funds Manager, Anton Taliaferro, is known as one of this country's most astute stock pickers and investors. But he's also obsessed with soccer, football I should call it, of course, sitting as he does on the advisory board of Central Coast Mariners A-League Club. In part two of our chat, Anton analyses what he thinks has gone wrong with football in Australia. And he reveals why he sticks to his value investing knitting, how he held his nerve against crazy valuation tech stocks, and just how he survived some of the worst financial crises of the past two decades. Here's part two of my chat with Anton Taliaferro. Anton Taliaferro, thank you very much for joining us again. Let's talk about some of those financial disasters, I guess, over the 25 years. Um, you know, we saw the first tech wreck of 2002, then the GFC in 08, 09. Yeah. Then, of course, the global pandemic when at least for some weeks in 2020, you know, world stock markets were in free fall and they didn't quite know, nobody seemed to know where they were going to land. And... Um, and then we've seen another tech crunch, I guess you'd call it, this year where all those many mm -hmm. of the big stocks have really been mm -hmm. crunched, uh, seemingly untouchable, but they've fallen from great heights. Did you escape all those crises unscathed? Uh, the tech boom, we did really well. The GFC, we did well because we didn't have any uh, Babcock and Browns or Centros or whatever. So that we came out. I mean, again, at the time, everything fell. But as the recovery came through, you know, the, our funds did really well, particularly 2010, 11, 12. There was the Euro crisis as well. Um, then what was the next crisis? Oh, that? well, the, I suppose um, really... Um, was COVID the next one? Yeah, um, really COVID, well, I guess. Well, COVID, we didn't do so well, actually, because we, we we actually thought there might be a serious recession coming. So, you know, we should have been buying with our ears been back. We didn't. And we missed out on that initial bounce, you know. So okay. that, that did hurt us. But the other two kind of crises, we did yeah. pretty well. And this year's 2022's tech kind of crunch? No, no, we've done quite well. I mean, obviously, interest rates are going up. So the era of free money is sort of over. So, you know, fundamentals are more being priced into stocks, which is yeah. good, I think, for people like us. I want to um, get to that in a moment. But can I just ask you about, even though you do invest in quality, well-managed companies, you've also been caught up in some doozies. Mm -hmm. I, I'll call them doozies yeah. um, that have fallen foul of either yep. share markets and am I not mistaken, you had Maya? We did have Maya, yeah, yes. Yeah, and that was, you know, yep, that's, that, that was a so disaster. Well. Yep. And, of course, all fallen foul. It's recovered quite well, but, yes, yes it, it was. Yep. all fallen foul of the law or regulators, and I'm thinking Crown. Actually, Crown, we did okay out of Crown, to be honest. Did so you? We, we got taken over, fortunately. Yeah. So, yeah, we did quite well So you stayed until the bitter end? We did, we did. And we then did. have you sold 
all of it? Yeah, the takeover to Blackstone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, Crown, look, uh, again, that was one where we were asked a lot of questions, but Crown was, to me, you know, the best casino company in the world when you looked at it because I I think what people in Australia don't understand is, is, you know, when you look around the world, large casinos are normally built in places like the deserts or something where it's very hard for people to get to them. Australia is the f- one of the only countries in the world where casinos are built right in the middle of a CBD, you know. Uh, so Crown That's owns a casino yeah. in Melbourne, right in the middle of Melbourne. Yeah. It owns one in Perth, on just on the outskirts yeah. there in Perth. Brisbane, and obviously Barangaroo yeah. will be uh, oh, yeah, by yeah, start. Yeah. Um, so, you know, number one, Crown owned three casinos, you know, well, the third one being Barangaroo. It was going to own three casinos in three of the capital cities, you know, three of the largest capital cities in one of the richest countries mm. in the world. I mean, that's just a very, very unique position. You know, they had no debt and those licenses, I think um, uh, uh, Melbourne was still 2050, uh, Perth was still 2070 and Barangaroo is still 2110 or something. How so- did they get it so wrong? And then I'm going to be very rude here and pointed. And how did you get it so wrong trusting those managements that they weren't going to let in crims and triads and dirty money and money laundering. <sighs> Helen, I mean, the junket market was always a very um, nebulous market. People always knew it was very nebulous. Regulators knew it was nebulous. Governments knew it was nebulous. Because uh, look, way- I, I'm not absolving no, governments no, so what or I'm regulators. Is, no, no. So what I'm saying is the you know a junket is a, a guy who comes from China or from wherever he comes from, and somebody over there tells the casino, yeah, this guy's okay for ten million or fifteen million, right? So he lands in Australia. He goes to gamble at Crown or Star, or whatever. He wins or he loses, whatever he does, he might cash in his credit from overseas and he might go and bank it somewhere, no one's quite sure, but that's the junket market. So um, when these accusations came up, so what happened is governments knew that was happening. Governments knew that was happening. Okay, but that doesn't necessarily say that they knew it was dirty money that they were trying to launder. Well, so why would a Chinese guy use a junket operator to come? Why wouldn't he go to his bank and send $10 million to Crown? Right, anyway, I see. So, look, the junket yeah, yeah. market was like that, and, yeah. and government sort of knew. Yeah. They didn't want to know, but they kind of knew, right? So, um, And what happened was, obviously, when China opened up from 2000 onwards, you know, the junket market just went ballistic. You know, there was more and more junket operators. In fact, Barangaroo was happened, the Crown Barangaroo, because James Packer convinced the New South Wales government that you have to have a really good facility to attract yeah, the a lot high, of these players. The high rollers. High yeah. rollers, junkets, whatever you call them, right? So, um, so look, it was all, and in fact, state governments used to give a special tax for junket players. There was a special tax. So, you know, New South Wales would cut the tax and then Brisbane would cut it and then WA would mm. cut it to attract junket, op, you know, junket players. They were actually called junket players. There was a special... So what happened, unfortunately, was <clears throat> the governments... Uh, basically told casinos, you monitor it. We'll let you monitor who comes into your casino, but, you know, make sure it's not sort of too illegal. But, okay, so let's say, again, Helen, I don't spend too much time. No, no, Somebody let's from China phones and says, I'm going to send Mr. Lee and he's got 10 million credit. And you as Crown say, but who's Mr. Lee? You go, oh, he's a property developer. 
I mean, how much more? Yeah. What What else do you have to do? So what, that's sort what of diligence you're going to do. And, uh, well, yeah. how much diligence can you? Yeah. do? So that's where the nebulous. That's where it all became a bit. Uh, you know, whose fault was it? Sure, because you know should have done more. You know, homework, whatever you could do, because this money is coming through a funny channel anyway. The government knew it was coming. You, you, you know what I'm saying? And and so, so the government. You're arguing let, they're all at fault. Well, the governments but, and 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 they let the casino self-regulate. You know, and, and they sort of said, on the, "Well, you, on the you, revenue. you make sure the money's okay." And they said, "Okay, we will. We'll make a couple of calls." And you know, you phone up and say, "Is this Mr. Lee okay?" And they go, "Yep, he's okay. Okay, thanks. He's yeah. got so no criminal record. He's not no whatever, but he's suddenly got the you know." So that's where it all got a bit um, difficult. And of course, as I said, so whose responsibility was it? Because I mean, the casinos are there to make money to attract junket players. The governments gave them a low junket rate. Rate of tax, and that's what they did. Now, unfortunately, they probably were too slack, you know. And the governments—they thought, oh well, the government wants this money here because, by the way, if that junket player doesn't come to Australia, Helen, he's going to go to Las Vegas, or he's going to go to Singapore, he's going to go to Macau, and you know, I guess the advantage of that junket player coming here is, you know, the government earned tax from it, it created jobs. It meant Crown had to build new facilities and new hotels, right? So, yeah. Anyway, so I don't think Crown was a mistake, actually. Okay, because for you, you mean, because you made money out of it. Well, we made money. Luckily, Blackstone took over, and I still believe longer term, as I said, you know, it owns three of the best casinos in the middle of the biggest cities in one of the richest countries in the world. Back to tech, you were talking in 2020 and 2021 about sort of the ridiculous or seemingly ridiculous, that's my word, ridiculous Mm -hmm. valuations Mm -hmm. on many of the tech companies Mm -hmm. that in many cases did not have the revenue backing, Mm -hmm. some of them weren't even profitable. Mm -hmm. Well, that turned out to be pretty prescient, didn't it? Your yeah, it did. It did. I mean, most of the companies, you know, we've seen Zip Money and whatever, Megaport and all, they've all gone down, you know, I don't know, 80% or yeah. whatever. And uh, some Afterpay. of them, I mean, Afterpay, well, Afterpay was lucky because it got a takeover. That's right. Which subsequently script takeover, which has also collapsed. But, uh, yeah, so most of those companies have kind of, yeah, you know, gone down substantially. So do you feel vindicated about that, that your strategy, at least in, in this year, is – has been working in 2022? Yes, of course. I mean, obviously, again, it's, it's you know, it's not about being vindicated. It's, you know, as I said, we have a philosophy of the sort of companies we like. <clears throat> we do look at these other companies from time to time, you know, but as I said, when we see no earnings, uh, management that's sort of hyping up the stock, uh, people valuing it at, you know, a, a value, say, um, you know, zip money is bigger than, brambles or whatever and you go well wow would i rather own the largest pallet company in the world or a a sort of buy now pay later which makes no money right so it's it's not that difficult a decision in some ways i think what companies do you like now in australia i know you've mentioned a few but do you still like them yes i think so again at the right price i mean i think the market's had a a big rally i I mean I'm, i'm actually surprised how well the market's done given what's going on you know with interest rates and 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 uh War in Ukraine and war in Ukraine, inflation, yeah, uh, lots of uncertainty, and we're almost back to record highs, right? Mm. So I'm I'm a bit surprised. So I I think there will be another opportunity to buy, you know, companies cheaper. What do you like? Um, I I like things like Horizon, for example, which you know everyone 
doesn't like it because it's coal. Uh, but again, we could talk a lot about coal and ESG and stuff. But, uh, you know, the truth is coal is going to be around for at least 15, 20 years, you know. And even if Australia doesn't want to use our own coal, uh, many countries around the world rely on our coal and will continue to rely on our coal. So, you know, they have long-term contracts to transport all the coal in Queensland from the mines to the ships. What else do you like? Um, at this stage, um, I mean, are supermarkets still in there or Woolies yes, still in there? Yes, I like Coles. You know, when Coles comes down, I tend to, you know, I like Coles. Woolies looks a bit expensive. Um, but at the moment, it, it's it's not that easy to find good value given all the uncertainty. Another one I like, which again is all the ESG people and stuff will tell me, you know, is Ampol. I quite like Ampol which, uh, you know, the largest petrol distributor. Now, people say electric cars, it's all coming tomorrow. Well, it's going to take many, many, many years, mm -hmm. you know, and Ampol's got, you know, very good management, very good, you know, cash flow, et cetera, and it looks good for the next – it looks undervalued. So, yes, there are concerns, as I said, with Horizon because it's coal, Ampol because it's petrol products, but the truth is, you know, those companies are going to be around for for a lot longer than I think what some people think. Yeah. And, and the fact that a lot of institutions can't own them because their ESG makes them cheap. You know? Yeah. So, what <laughs> companies or sectors don't you particularly like and would be wary of investing in 2023? I'm still uh, – I'd still be a bit cautious of cyclicals. You know, I still think when you look at something like JB Hi-Fi, for example, which got to $50 during COVID when everything was booming, it's now at 44 So it's not as – it's come off, but not that much. That's still given, pretty high. Given, you know, potentially we could have a recession. I mean, I think – you know, people are dismissing it or talking about a recovery before we've even had the downturn. And I, I mean, you, you know what I mean? People are already starting to talk about the the upturn. We haven't had the downturn yet. In fact, so you think it's still coming a, a downturn of some sort? Of course, economic. I mean, it takes time for interest rates to. Yeah. I mean, if you look at retail sales, employment, it's still very strong. So we haven't had much yeah. of a downturn. Yeah. I mean, the key is inflation. You know, if inflation doesn't come down, then rates have to go a lot higher than people expect. What don't you like aside from cyclicals? Mainly cyclicals. Look, okay. I mean, yeah, cyclicals are the main thing, which includes building material. I, I just think there's more pain to come. You know. Uh, the retailers, the building materials, and anything with cyclical. Today, you saw a downgrade from domain. You know, advertising is going to be tough. So, I mean, the truth is, the other thing, Helen, is you know, Australia hasn't had a recession since 1990. That's you know, 42 years. So that means anybody under the age of it is 42 years, isn't it? Uh, or 32 years? It's 32, 32 years. Sorry, yeah. my maths is wrong. 32 years. So that really means anybody under the age of 50. Yeah. Because, you know, you're 18 when yes, the last that's recession. Right. And, and most you're not people paying attention. Yeah. Or chasing girls or yeah. whatever they were doing, right? And learning how to drive. So really, nobody under the age of 50 in Australia has ever seen a recession. So people don't understand, yeah. you know, what it means to have high unemployment, to, to not have jobs aplenty, to, you know, to have a downturn in retail sales. So I, I think that's part of the reason why everyone thinks, oh, we're off to the races again soon, you know, when we haven't. And you've got to ask yourself the question, you know, the Reserve Bank's rates are around 3% and we've still got inflation at 7, you know, yeah. 6 or 7 or 8. So, I mean, it's, it, it, it feels to me like the peak of rates might be a bit higher than what people are expecting. Yeah, so you think there's still more rate hikes to Potentially. come? Potentially, yeah. Well, to bring inflation down. Yeah. You're not going to bring inflation down from 7 to yeah. their target of 2. 2, <laughs> with, two and a half, with, yeah. with interest rates at minus 4, effectively. For most of the time, 
or pretty much all the time, you've been a private company, IML. Um, now, in late 2019, your funds under management were listed as around $9 billion or over $9 billion. Yep. You're telling me they're now around $5 billion. Yep. So what does that mean? Okay, so what's happened is we've lost some institutional clients because I said if you underperform the benchmark, they tend to pull it you know, quite quickly. So we've lost a couple of big um, clients. Obviously, the market's come off a little bit. Uh, we've been distributing as well. We've made quite big distributions because when you make a capital gains in a fund, you have to pay it out. You can't keep it. So we've had a, quite large capital gains distributions. A couple of wholesale funds have left and whatever. So, yeah, and now the challenge for IML is to rebuild that fund. Yeah. Do you Have you seen real competition from the vanguards and the passive? 100%. I mean, yeah. that's the other thing. The market is changing. Um, if you look at the... Uh, institutional side, uh, obviously the, the fees are always, you know, you get not much in fees and also a lot of those, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of mergers going on, you know, where they're getting super big, the, the, the industry funds, and a lot of them are taking in in-house some of their funds management. So they're becoming effectively their own institution. Yeah. So that makes it tough, you know, to get money from the institutional side. On the retail side, yes, we've seen two two trends. Uh, number one, as you're saying, the indexing. We've seen ETFs uh, become very popular. And we've also seen a lot of people do begin to do it themselves. So, you know, why would I go to a perpetual or an IML? Um, what can they, I, I can buy my own Woolworths, my own Amcor, right? So there's, yeah. there's, there's all that going on. So, yeah. yeah, so it, it is it is quite tough. What sort of returns, net of fees, have you been able to achieve for your clients? <sighs> Good question, Helen. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I, I think we try always to aim for, you know, 10 to 12% is what we'd like to do. We probably haven't done that in the last couple of years, but that's what we'd like to achieve. And I think well, we've achieved a, that over the long long term. Yeah, in a but very the last low couple inflation. Of years, it's, been, um, it's been hard because yeah, well, that, obviously the market's come off, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. Yeah, you decided to sell part of the business in um, – well, you bought Treasury in, you said earlier, but you decided to sell part of your business in 2017 to a large French bank. They have now bought it all and you are going to step down. Why did you decide you wanted to sell your business baby? Well, they, they approached me uh, back in 2017. You know, the Natixis are a large um, – uh, fund management company. They own lots of fund managers around the world. They own Harris Associates in the US. They own Loomis Sales. They didn't have a fund management presence in Australia. And, you know, they identified IML as a as a manager they'd like to acquire. So they approached me in 2017. Fantastic. 16, 17. A treasury group who were still owners of 45% of IML, they were willing sellers anyway. Um, and, you know, uh, Natixis wanted to own more than 40%, um, so they bought some of my stake and then there was a progressive sell-down over the last five years. So that sale in 2017, which weren't all your shares, you're saying, um, was for $155 million. but you got some wealth then. I'm not saying that's the first time you ever got wealth. How did that wealth sort of sit with you? Helen, look, to be honest, the, 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 you know, IML's been doing well for a long time, so I, I've, I've been, you know, not short of, of funds for a while. So, you know, I've, you know I, I find it hard to understand sometimes, you know, how, how well financially 
I have done personally, to be honest. But uh, it hasn't changed my lifestyle that much. You know, I, I still I like to think of myself as quite humble um, and non-assuming. I, I think the one philosophy I've I've always taken to work at IML, no matter how successful we were over the years, is you know I've always tried to instill in staff a sense of humility. Uh, a sense that, you know, hard work is what matters, a sense that no one owes us a living. You know, every day we come in, sure, we've got this great business that generates fees every day, but we have to earn, you know, we have to earn our living. We can't just sit back on our laurels and just expect people to continue to trust us forever. You know, we have to earn, we have to earn our way. So that's always been my sort of work philosophy. Some people might say it's a bit old-fashioned or, or harsh, or I saw today the guy from Newcrest, uh, resigning because they said the board said he's a bit too old-fashioned and a bit too hard with his staff and you know staff nowadays perhaps prefer a more genteel sort of approach which I've tried to adapt a little bit as well but I, I, you know I'm from the school where you know you have to work hard you know to to earn a living and I think in a, when you're in a privileged position like IML where you know, people have trusted you with their money. They're paying you a good fee for, for, for managing that money. You know, you have to earn it. That means lots of hard work, lots of going to see clients, lots of communication, et cetera, et cetera, you know, so, yeah. Yeah. What are your markers of success for IML now? You started with, I think you said, a couple of employees and a couple of clients. When, when I look back on the 25 years, I think the most, you know, the the I guess the proudest or the highlights of the thing was wanting, winning, you know, Fund Manager of the Year. I think, you know, in in the 25 years, I think we won it five or six times, you know, which is which is quite good, you know, for a small company. So we won it in 2003, 2004. We won it in 2012, 13, 14, I think. So, you know, I think those were, you know, magnificent highlights. And I've, I've always said, told staff, that's our next, uh, you know, that's where we want to be again. You know, that's the next thing we have to do. We have to work hard, get the performance right to, to win another, you know, another one or two fund managers of the year. That That's really what should be our aim, right? But, so, I mean, you've grown it from, what, a couple of employees to now being having funds under management of $5 billion invested in Australian stocks. That's that's a pretty big marker of success. It is. It is. I agree. But, but the... You know, the, it's a very competitive industry. Everybody can see your returns versus other people. We, you know, we're not at the we're not in the top whatever we should where we should be. I think, and and that's where we need to get to because that's what, you know, it's a very competitive industry. Yeah. As I said, when I look back to when I started in in the industry back in 1988, there was the you know as I said, legal and generals, prudential, they've all gone. Then in two thousand, you know, two thousand, there was the Colonials and Merrill Lynch and they've all gone. And if you look at the fund management table today, you know, in 10 or 20 years, there'll be, again, not everybody's going to be there in 10 yeah. or 20 years. And you've got to work hard to make sure you, you know, you're one of the names that is still relevant and is still there in 10 or 20 years' time. So you're saying more work needs to be done. You just have we to keep competing and, and working hard and you've got to pick the right stocks, you know. Now, you are an entrepreneur, I would call you that, but yet you shy away from investing in the classic entrepreneurs. What would make a good entrepreneur, or what would make any entrepreneur worth backing from your point of view with this strategy that you follow? Oh, um, or do you just steer away from them because it's too risky unless they've got this track record of good performance, solid earnings, 
Yeah, partly. I, th I think, look, you, you don't shy away from entrepreneurs altogether. But, you know, again, in the stock market and I guess in life, you know, everybody's got often these grand plans and they want to take on the world and whatever. And, and you know, as you know, it's not that simple. And the chances of success are, are, are you know, quite small, really, in, in reality. So it's not that you stay away from someone who's, in fact, what you'd, what you'd like to find is often entrepreneurial management within a you know within a company that's you know that that's they know what they're doing they have a plan and they stick to it and i mean i, I the one i'd like i'd mention is sonic healthcare which you know started off in 1994 with one or two uh, pathology clinics and um you know dr colin goldsmith and chris wilkes were running it then they're still running it today and they've taken you know sonic from a few labs in Australia, to um, to now being the the largest pathology company in Australia, uh, they're number three in America, the number one in Germany, number one in the UK, number one in Belgium, number one in Switzerland. So you know those guys have been quite entrepreneurial yeah. within the framework, but they they set realistic goals. Uh, you know, again, it doesn't sound like you when I say what they've achieved, but they've done it very incrementally. Yes, they've been very carefully with how they've acquired. Things you know with their funding, they've never overgeared and 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 risked the balance sheet. So it's not about um, uh, totally ignoring or you know rejecting country. It's it's about finding people with the right plan, with the right funding. You know that that can achieve their sometimes you know great um, objectives. You were born and raised in Malta. Mm -hmm. Where did your entrepreneurial streak, this idea, I'm going to back myself, come from? Were you folks in business? Were they were they figures people? Look, my dad was a, a branch manager at a, at a bank in Malta. You know, my mother was a housewife. Um, again, very humble sort of middle class people. Um, they made a big sacrifice, you know, to send me to London to educate me when there was political trouble in Malta because I, I was supposed to do medicine, but ended up doing finance in a finance degree in London. Um, so so they so they valued education. Yes. Yes, you had to get you were going to get an education. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, very ambitious from that point of view. You know, in terms of of, of wanting all, all all us three kids, in fact, qualified got got a degree. They were very strong on that. Um, and look, I'm not sure with the entrepreneurial spirit. I guess I've got I've got quite a bit of energy, you know. And um, yeah, and, and I didn't know. I, Helen, if you told me 30 or 40 years ago, you know, you you'll set up your own firm one day, you'll be quite successful, you'll make quite a lot of money. It, it wasn't in my, you know, that wasn't my... So that wasn't the goal? It wasn't really. I was a fund manager. I sort yeah. of enjoyed what I did. I thought I'll go out on my own, set up my own company yeah. and see, how, you know, hopefully it'll be reasonably successful. And um, I don't know, I didn't think about where it would be in 20 years' time. You know, <laughs> What do you think or what did... Australia offer that lured you to migrate here rather than, I mean, you could have had a fantastic career in London, mm -hmm. presumably. Mm -hmm. Look, I, I'd been in London for six years and, you know, the weather of London was, you know, brought, I mean, I'm from a Mediterranean yeah. island, so yes. you know, the sun and the sea are always sort of part of your DNA almost. And, uh, you know, London winters in London can be quite harsh. And plus I was having trouble with work permits in those days because there was no EU, etc. And then Deloitte's mentioned, you know, the Sydney office. Do, do you want to go to Deloitte's in Sydney? 
So, wow, it's, it's a long way. And I, I knew some Australian people in London, and you know, they all, you know, Australians are very different people to Europeans, you know, they're all a bit outrageous and, you know, a bit crazy, fun, even the accountants, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know what I mean? Because English yeah, people are very yeah, stiff and very reserved. In, the, in yeah. the city is very, very snooty and very whatever, Oxford, Cambridge. And, and then you get the occasional Australian coming over to work there. And I remember when I told, I told a couple of the guys there that I was going to work for Deloitte's and I was supposed to work for Deloitte's in Parramatta initially. And I kept asking these guys, so is, is, is Parramatta in Sydney? Like it's Sydney, isn't it? They said, oh, yeah, mate, just watch out for the spiders. <laughs> what are you talking about, man? Is it Sydney or is it, you know, so Australians are, yeah. you know, they're always tongue in cheek, very, very unique. So when I came out, my parents were horrified because they thought, why are you going to the other side of the world? And I thought, look, it's a two-year contract, although I was give, I was offered permanent residency. And uh, I told them, look, if I don't like it, I'll come back. If I like it, I'll stay. And uh, I mean, you know, it just blew my mind when I came to Sydney, really. It just completely blew my mind. Why? Oh, like Helen. Weather, women, No, just, it's the best country in the world, Australia. I mean, I don't know if Australians, I think most Australians realise it, you know, I think. Um, I mean, I remember catching the ferry, you know, the the, the week before I joined Deloitte, so I, I had a week off to get my, you know, stuff together, and I caught a ferry from um, the city to Taronga Park, and I, you know, the ferry took off, and I I looked back, and I saw this, you know, unbelievable city with skyscrapers, you know, blue sky, blue sea, I thought, wow, like, this is like the Mediterranean plus the city of London. I mean, where else can you get the mixture of kind of the Mediterranean climate and weather with a city, a world-class city? I mean, what other cities are there? Yeah. Rio? I mean, maybe Rio, but then you're not safe to walk around the corner. You know, Cape Town, again, same thing. So, I mean, Sydney is just unique, isn't it, to, to me? Absolutely. And I was just very lucky to kind of stumble across it a bit because I didn't really know what to expect. Yeah. But when I saw it, and, and then the people, the, the you know, they're so quite laid back. They're not sort of, you know, the English can be very standoffish and whatever, and I, 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 I just loved it straight away. Will it be more difficult to manage sort of investing and equities investing in the higher inflation, higher interest rates environment? Well, it should be. It should be a very volatile, uncertain time, shouldn't it? But the markets have recovered. I mean, Australia's gone back to almost record highs. I, 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 it's it's just difficult to understand, isn't it? We're already talking about a recovery before we've even had a, yeah. a negative quarter of, of GDP. Um, so I, I think there will be opportunities, you know. You probably have to be a bit patient, you know, because the, the market still has this. I, I guess so it's we've still had too such expensive a, is what you're saying. Well, but given the uncertainty, yeah. yes, it is, I think. And, and I, I think... I think we've had such a long period of, you know, central banks, uh, you know, always free money. Well, or... free money always coming in, intervening, and rescuing us whenever we're in trouble. You know that everyone sort of still kind of expects that to happen. And the truth is, you know, I'm sure central banks would love to do that. But the truth is, inflation has got away from them. Uh, they're kind of trying to catch up very slowly. They're doing it very cautiously. I mean, I, I, don't, Helen, I don't know if you remember back in the early 90s, the, you know, the RBA kind of went 1%, 1%, 1% increases in rates till they got to 21% because inflation was at 8 Yeah. And that inflation's was, almost at 8 now, yeah. and they've done the big move of moving it to 3%. You know, and and even rates. then, everyone is screaming. Well, yeah, at always. 21, he was definitely screaming. Yeah, yeah. well, know, that did that was cause a, a recession. But, but all I'm saying is 
Inflation is 8% now again. Yeah. And the, the RBA is saying they may have done enough because they've raised rates to three. You know, so I, no. I'm not sure. It's, it's still early days, I think. But yeah. I, I, Do you think inflation is still going to head up in 2023? I think it'll come off uh, because obviously the oil price is going to double again, the, you know, but but it's not going to come down. It's not that 2% target which they've set, you know, we're not going to see that for, for, for many years unless they go, un- unfortunately, quite hard with interest rates. Just re- a couple of brief comments because I know we've been going um, a while. You have in the past been very against short selling. Mm-hmm. What's your view now? Look, I think short selling has a role, but I, I think whenever there's a financial crisis or markets look a bit, you know, wobbly, they, 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 they sh- it should be sort of um, stopped. I, I think uh, short selling, um, you know, leads to panic when markets are, are in a, in a poor state. I, I think, it, and it can actually do damage to the real economy. Because, you know, if you're shorting banks when everyone's a bit nervous about bad debts and those banks have to try and raise capital and, you know, yeah. because otherwise the For whole sure. economy, then that, that's where I get a bit uh, uh, sensitive about it. Because yeah. I, th- I think short selling is fine, like to do now when the economy is normal. But I think when, you know, when things really get tough and, and where potentially the short selling can start affecting the real economy, then it should be curtailed. Changing the subject, you're fairly obsessed with football, uh, soccer I'll still call it. Um, You sit on the advisory board of the A-League team, Central Coast Mariners. Mm -hmm. You attended the World Cup in Qatar. Mm -hmm. How do you view how Australia is doing in soccer, both at that elite, very top level and also at the grassroots level? Oh, look, I think, unfortunately, football in Australia is in a bit of a mess. Um, You know, the... um, you know, we had the old NSL, the National Soccer League, which got canned for the A-League. Um, you know, they just they threw away the all these old, well-established clubs like Sydney Croatia and Sydney Marconi, Sydney Olympic, uh, because they said they were too ethnic and they were too divisive from a society point of view. Uh, you know, they said they were too tribal, which, you know, football is a bit tribal. If you go to England and go and watch Manchester United and Manchester City, it is tribal. Oh, yeah. So... You know, that, that whole transition from the old NSL to the A-League wasn't very well handled, so there's a lot of... So you're it, saying the A-League is struggling to get is. traction with communities, with fans and supporters? It is, it yeah. is. And, and, and a lot of those uh, low, um, state associations, you know, they don't have time for the A-League because basically the A-League cut, their, cut them off. You know, the, right. the Sydney Marconis, the Sydney whatever, they, they became second rate as soon as the A-League was formed. So they're obviously not very happy, uh, happy about it, and 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 mm. you know, and so they make they try and make life difficult actually for the A League. So uh, A League academy teams try to participate in the state leagues, and the state associations don't like them to participate in the in the. So there's there, it's it's a, in a in a state of flux. In a from a personal point of view, and I'll get back to the Socceroos briefly. But it, from a personal point of view, what did you? What do you bring, do you think, to the Central Coast Mariners, the advisory board? Is it your investing and financial um, expertise? Is it your soccer love and passion? Um, I'm I'm very passionate about youth development in football. So what I've done with the Central Coast is I've helped, I've invested or spent money, actually, whatever, donated to, to build their academy. And we've, we've, you know, in the last three years, we've produced a number of players who are now playing overseas. 
Fantastic. Uh, some of, one, one of them almost scored against Argentina in the last minute, you know, Garan Qual. Oh, who's fantastic. Who's just been sold to Newcastle United in the UK. So we, in the last three years, we've been identifying boys, bringing them up to Gosford. We don't want to lose them, though. Training. Well, they get, we sell them. The club sells yeah, them, right. gets some money, so, but also to advance themselves in yes, football. Yes, of course. You know? Um, of course, you can't sit on them. You can do the, you know, you, know, you can go so far in the A League, but if a club like Newcastle United and other boys, Stuttgart from Germany, you know, if they come for these these boys, I mean, it's an amazing opportunity. Yeah. Well, but you know, those opportunities are quite rare because yeah. you're competing against, you know, Brazilians, Argentinians, Africans. You know, you're competing with everybody from yeah. around the world. So, you know, those opportunities are pretty hard to come by. So, so it's it's a big thing. It's a great thing, and, and in fact. When you look at the great Australian team of the past, you know, the 2006 team of Harry Kuehl, mm. Mark Reschano, Viduka, they all played their football overseas uh, for top clubs overseas. And that's why the Socceroos were so good then. You know, we've had a good World Cup. I think we were a bit lucky. We played very different type of football, you know, but we did well. But I think if we can develop the youth and if they can go and play for top clubs and then come and play for the national team, you know, we'll be a lot, lot better in the years ahead. Fantastic. few quick questions, only need a quick answer. What are you obsessed about at the moment, be it a film, a book, a place, football, I football. a stock? Look, I love football now. I love football. And, and, you know, as I said, I'm in this… Did uh, you play? Yes, you I did. Oh, I did. did. Yes, I did play it. So I was about nineteen twenty. Yes, I did. For the Bells and Yes, yes, which is a team in Malta, which I sponsor today. So yes, that's right. Fabulous. So you still yeah. have links there? Yeah, yeah, I do. I'm a president of a club in Malta. Would you believe? I'm not surprised at all, <laughs> given your passion for it. What's one of the toughest things you've uh, faced? I guess in your career? Well, apart from, you know, we talked about the tech boom, whatever. I think the hardest thing is, is sometimes when you have to, you know, um, uh, move people on because they're not doing a good enough job, you know, especially, you know, as I said, it's a very competitive industry. And sometimes you have to sit down with people and say, listen, you know, you're not delivering or you're not doing very well. And you, you're probably better off elsewhere. You know, th- th- I always find those conversations very difficult. I bet you do. I, I, I lose sleep over them, actually. Yeah. So, yeah. What's the biggest lesson you've learned in your investing, but also your entrepreneurial business journey? Oh, Helen, I don't know. Look, I, I, I've always told my son now, who's sort of following, he's, he's doing investment. I've always told him, you know, hard work uh, and persistence and humility, you know, those, those to me are the three attributes to follow. Uh, to be successful, you know, but you, you can't, there's no such thing as an overnight success. Uh, as I said, it takes a lot of hard work, persistence, and I think humility is always a, a good attribute, you know, because if you get too far ahead of yourself, um, you know, the world has a habit of sort of bringing you back down to work pretty quickly, I think. So, yeah. What would you say to perhaps younger people who might want to pursue their dream or idea or back themselves? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, they're living in the right country to do it because I think Australia is an amazing country of possibilities. You know, nobody ever discouraged. It's an amazingly positive country as well. I think that's the other thing that struck me when I came here in 1984. You know, people are positive generally. If you go to Europe, they're worried, they're worried about, I don't know, the war, the gas price, the whatever, you know, how, how they're going to survive next winter. And whereas in Australia, people tend to be very po- of a positive mindset. So I think that's a plus. Um I would say, you know, pursue your dream, uh, be realistic, be patient. And, uh, you know, as I said, you've just got to be very persistent, you know, and and, uh, and 
And be realistic, you know, have you got something that really may succeed or are you just sort of dreaming? I mean, a lot of, as you know, a lot of businesses set up and unfortunately go broke, you know, because they, they yeah, they, they stretch themselves too far. They don't have a point of differentiation or or they don't have, or they're not prepared to put in that level of commitment because, as I said, to, to be a successful business, I I mean, I, I, I even IML, I always tell them the way, you know, with a business, you have to run it with the sort of thing, I've, I've got to, you know, do a good job because I may not be in business next week if I don't, you know, and that's unfortunately the reality of business. It's never, it's never easy. It's, it's never, mm -hmm. you never get to a stage in business where you go, oh, I've made it now, we can sort of relax, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, in fact, sometimes the more successful you become, the harder it is because everybody wants to take, kind of eat your breakfast, you know. So, yeah, so look, it, it's just persistence and, and hard work and, and being realistic. Anton Taliaferro, the founder of Investors Mutual Limited, thank you so much for joining me on Build It They'll Come. It's been great to speak to you. Thanks for your time and thanks for inviting me here, Helen. And I hope what I've said has been of interest to you. So thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed Build It They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.